The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Suzanne Kuhn from Wanganingen Marine Research. She has led a study called Details of Plastic Ingestion and Fiber Contamination in North Sea Fishes, as well as doing an important study on fulmars. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So please tell us where you're from and what kind of research you do. Um, I'm originally born in Germany, and now I live for more than 10 years in the Netherlands, and I'm working for, for this uh, privatized research institute, uh, Wageningen Marine Research. What I'm doing is um, working mainly on, on not on full mass. They are known to ingest a lot of plastic. And we try to look at the problem from different angles. That's where the fish comes in, because full mass, they do eat fish, and maybe they take up uh, plastic via the fish they eat. Yeah, and on your study uh, with Fulmars, did you find that that's where the plastic was coming from, was from their fish diets? Mm, we looked at mm, almost yeah, more than 4,000 fish in the North Sea and another 70 from the Arctic Ocean, another region where Fulmars occur. And we only found very little plastic in fish. So in, in our fish, it's about like, two to three percent of the fish that contains plastic and usually the plastic is very very small smaller than a millimeter and when we look at full mass like 90 percent of the full mass they have ingested plastic and the particles are much bigger they're around like three four five millimeters so we assume that fish uh, is not a major pathway so that only little plastic contributes uh, to, to the plastic load that uh, that FOMAS actually have. Mm-hmm. We, we talked to another scientist who was saying that for humans, when we eat fish, we don't typically eat the stomachs of the fish. So if the fish were eating microplastic, we typically wouldn't eat them on our plates because we're not really eating fish stomachs unless you're eating something small like a sardine or something. Uh, do you think that that kind of holds true in terms of birds eating fish or do they eat fish whole do they eat the whole stomach yeah usually in um full mass like smaller fish they ingest completely so they would get the whole uh stomach and plastic load in them Mm. but for example full mass they tend to follow fishing vessels and sometimes uh, on these fishing vessels they already gut the fish so therefore all the liver and, and intestines are thrown overboard and then of full mass they they love that kind of food so they would eat whatever they can get which is often um, the liver because it's very fatty and um, obviously also the stomach because it might be connected to this. Wow that's a very good point that I never thought of so I used to serve in the Canadian Navy and I watched our cook dump the kitchen scraps out the back of the boat and typically if you're just dumping you know veggie scraps or little meat scraps or whatever it's fine but sometimes I would see plastic being dumped as well so like maybe a yogurt container got into the food scrap bucket or some twist ties or wrappers you know that kind of thing so I wonder if the ships 
are dumping any plastic that would be the bigger pieces that you're finding in the Fulmores? Yeah, we do find a lot of, for example, pepperbell seeds in Fulmore stomachs. And obviously they won't float a sea. But what we think is that they, by following ships, that they get exactly those loads of, of the kitchen uh, scraps uh, with them. And they are quite smart. They, they can, like, they know when you're throwing stuff overboard. And what sometimes happens is that this biological waste gets into a grinder first to make it small and compact. Mm. And sometimes it happens that also plastic gets into that grinder and then is thrown aboard together with the biological uh, waste. Yeah. So that would be a pathway indeed for, for plastics and fulmas. So you said that it was pepper seeds, like those bell peppers? Yes, or onion skin, tomato skin. We find grape seeds, wow. olive seeds sometimes. Yeah, yeah. 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 I bet, I bet there's plastic going off in the kitchen scraps. Cause like I said, I saw it with my own eyes and, and the Canadian Navy, we have some of the best environmental regulations in the world yeah. for shipping. Yeah. So if we're doing it, you know, there's probably some other countries that are. Yes. yes. Are I mean, officially it's, it's forbidden to throw plastic overboard. Luckily yeah. since, since a few years by, by Marpool um, on an international level, but of course things happen on a ship and it's a lot of work to maybe put it aside or whatever so the easiest way and sometimes obviously incidentally it happens yes yeah yeah we would you know i don't think it's too intentional like we're not just taking all our plastic and dumping it it was just ending up in the the food and 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 cigarette butts too there are a lot of people throwing their butts (laughs) yes yes, do do you ever find those in the full mars as well we do find cigarette butts once in a while However, these um, cigarette butts are made of cellulose acetate. Yeah. And usually they disintegrate very quickly into kind of fibers, and then you don't recognize them as being butts anymore in a full mass stomach. And they also tend to sink because they're heavier than seawater. So they won't float on the surface, and that's where the full usually is, is foraging. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's why you find them a lot on beaches, but not in, in seawater, usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think initially they'll float, but I guess they don't float very, very long. As no, soon they, as they soak up with water and then they're gone. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's get into your, your study on fulmores a little bit more. So what did you find when you tested the gastric fluid of the, the fulmores? I believe you added plastic to the stomach fluid to see kind of what was happening there. Exactly. Plastic is known for, for having some additives uh, embedded, so, for example, flame retardants or plasticizers, UV blockers, colors, whatever. And we wanted to know whether these substances do transfer from the plastic into the, the stomach of a full mass and therefore into the body of full mass. So we mixed the stomach fluid of a full mass together with the plastic we collected on the beach. So therefore, we knew it's it's like realistic plastic, the plastic that a former would actually eat when, when being out at sea. And uh, before we uh, used that plastic, we did tons of analysis um, to see what type of additives are actually in the material. And then we took samples after well, a few days and after even three months to see whether this ad- whether the additives transfer to the stomach oil. And what we found is that indeed a lot of different additive types moved from the plastic into the oil of the stomach, what, what is inside the stomach of the fulmar. So that's quite worrying. Fulmars, because they they fly at sea and sometimes they find 
big schools of fish or something, they have to digest quite quickly. So they make space for more food. <laughs> so they, oh. they are quite acid in, in their stomachs. And what also plays a role is that fulmas and other albatross-like birds, they produce some kind of oil out of their food. So when processing and digesting, for example, fish, they uh, keep some oil out of the fish in their stomach. And oil is known to kind of extract some substances out of other materials. So that even makes the, the, the fulma more suspicious to, to such uh, effects. Yeah, I remember hearing that about cans because cans typically have the BPA lining. And we've had people on the show before say that oily foods will get that BPA out into your food from the can more than other types of food so Water yeah we've kinda... or whatever yeah yeah that's true. yeah yeah so is this is this hurting the fulmar population do you think like is this having having negative effects it's a very difficult question what we know is that fulmar populations uh, are decreasing in some places quite dramatically however there are more factors for example climate change fisheries other types of pollution may play a role. So for us, it's really hard to find how much plastic actually contributes to, to a potential decline in populations. And as long as we are studying birds in the wild, we really don't know how much plastic is contributing, if it is contributing. I would think that the diets aren't as balanced as they should be as well. If the fulmars are following the ships and eating certain parts over and over instead of the full fish so like I, I think even for humans you're not supposed to eat too much liver or like too much fat you know like you don't want to just have this diet I mean maybe because yes. we know that like the Inuit they had a high fat diet I don't know but it just seems like maybe their diet isn't as balanced if they're just eating the scraps yeah, I mean you're having one part that is for example that plastic mechanically fills up the stomach so there's no place for for enough food for example but of course, fulmars are top predators, so they eat a lot of other animals and comparable to, to the Inuit, uh, for example, they do eat a lot of livers and stuff of other animals. So accumulated substances may end up in, in fulmars. Yeah. So I was reading through one of your studies and I saw that plastic was first discovered in seabirds in the 1960s. That's a that's a long time ago. Like we've known about this problem for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about like do you know anything about the first discovery or anything like do you know when it was in the 1960s? Mm, yeah. There's been even older records. For example, there's been uh, found a candlestick which is not plastic but still like human debris in I looked it up 1838. In wow. A seabird. I mean, this is even before Plastic was even invented, actually. And then in the 1960s, uh, let me see, in 1962, um, there was the first uh, discovery of, of plastic in, in uh, storm petrels. Those are real, like, tiny little beautiful seabirds. Same family as, as my formas. And th those were found in, in Newfoundland in Canada with some plastic in it. And at the like, same time, around 1964, there were on the other side of, of uh, America, on, on, on Hawaii, uh, laser albatrosses that were found with bottle caps and other types of plastic in, in their stomachs as well. So they also belong to the same family. So 
the tube noses, those are the fulmars, the, the albatrosses and stuff that do have those tubes on the nose, that they are really prone to plastic ingestion, even in the old days. <laughs> we talked to uh, Dr. Denise Hardesty. Mm-hmm. So she was telling us about the study on the seabirds as well. What were those little ones called again? Uh... Um, storm petrels. Storm petrels, yeah. She's done a lot of work on those, I think, yeah. Um, that was episode, if you're listening, uh, it's episode 105 called Plastic and Marine Life. There's a lot of information in that episode as well about um, about sea life and, and plastic and what it's doing to marine animals and, and stuff like that. So the... The other question I wanted to ask you about seabirds. So you, I, it looks like you develop these three methods to analyze plastic in seabirds. So can you tell us what those three methods are? Mm, yes, I, I didn't develop them. I'm. I, oh, those were developed in in the early two thousands or maybe even earlier. Um, usually for for diet studies. Mm-hmm. And after a while, they started finding uh, plastic as well. So they used domes as well. I. I I just described them or summarized them, so um, <laughs> I didn't do that. But the usual way is that we actually dissect birds, and those birds, most of the time, come, for example, from beaches or something. They die because we usually of starvation, for example. We don't know whether it has to do with plastic or not. In most cases, we don't think so. So we find them dead on the beach, and we take them to the lab, and then we cut them open, and. Um, take out their stomach and look into the stomach. This has the advantage that we can actually have a look at body condition, for example, that we can have a look at the cause of death, if we can find some signs, for example, for for bycatch or for collision or whatever. And that we usually can reveal the gender and the age of a bird, whether it's a young or an adult bird. And the other two methods would be, for example, that you force live birds to, to vomit, actually. Uh, therefore, you have to catch a bird. And uh, what you can do is either give them emetics or put a, like a pipe in their, in their throat and then let them, let them uh, vomit and collect the, the content and see what it's, what's in there. That can be handy because you can select certain birds you would like to, to look at. As, of course, the disadvantage that... Uh, you have to handle a live bird, which is, of course, stressful for the bird itself, and that you may only get part of the stomach content because you don't know whether you have all of it. And the third one that's usually used is um, some birds, they, for example, land birds, owls are known to do that. At the end of the day, they, may, they collect all the indigestible prey items and puke them, so regurgitate them, and you can actually collect those pellets and see what's inside. Gulls do do that a lot. Uh, cormorants do, do do that a lot as well. Fulmars and albatrosses don't. So you have kind of, you're restricted to, to a certain species if you use that meta- method. And again, you don't know if you have the complete uh, stomach content in, in that bolus. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening in the Belleville area here in Canada, you may have went to the Frink Center. And when I was a little girl, I remember picking through the owl pellets and I thought it was the neatest thing. So all of us kids, I don't know if they still do this. I feel like they probably don't anymore. Um, but we would pick apart all the fur and you could find the little bones. And we were trying to piece together the bones of like mice or something, right? We were kind of like trading yep. bones and <laughs> it was really neat. Um, so I assume you've been thrown up uh Birds have thrown up on you quite a bit. <laughs> mm, yes, yes, they do so. When when you handle them, some of them use it as a defense mechanism. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but usually you can go into a cow colony and there will, will be those boluses or pellets uh, indeed and you can just collect them. They are quite like firm, easy to, to just pick them up and at home indeed you can just uh, pull them apart and see fur and bones and especially in gulls they do forage a lot on landfills so you can find chicken bones or spare ribs or a colleague of mine actually found a mobile phone so everything is possible. <laughs> oh my gosh. So this is really fascinating stuff on the Fulmars. Uh, I wanted to go into talking about your study on fish populations mm-hmm. in the North Sea. So I noticed you found airborne fiber contamination in fish populations in the North Sea. So can mm-hmm. you tell us how you knew they were airborne? <laughs> That's not easy. And that is the main problem because Usually we cannot distinguish them. Once they are in the sample, we don't know whether the fish has ingested those fibers or whether they come from the air. But what we did is um, putting some control uh, dishes next to our sample and then check the amount of fibers in there because then we know for sure it's from the air. And then we can calculate how much fibers are actually in the ambient air and how much may be in the stomach. And what, what we found is that in our case, and that may differ for, for each lab, there were almost more fibers in the control than in our samples, which means that most of the uh, fibers in the samples are probably from, from the air and not from our fish. Oh, so they would be from your lab? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, They're all around us it, now, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, wherever you go, whenever you eat your pizza, there will be fibers on top of it because they are in the air and they just land on wherever you are. I really worry about them getting into our alveoli. As soon as you breathe dust, you will get those fibers in in your body. But usually lungs are trained for collecting little particles that do not belong in in the lungs. So they probably used to those the the slimy part. (laughs) So they, they know how to get rid of it again. But of course, there may be the chance that they get into the lungs and, and may have an effect. We don't know. That makes me feel a little bit better <laughs> to know that <laughs> yeah. we've got a defense mechanism already against this yes, this yes. stuff. So the the fish species, were there certain species that tested higher for plastic than other species? In our studies, we found that actually cod was one that had high, quite a high incidence. And in our study, it was like 12%. Just It's still very low in compared to fulmas that had 90%, but all the other fishes were even lower at, at 2%. So there is a difference. And I'm, I mean, there are many explanations why this might differ. It might be the foraging technique uh, that the fish that is, like, for example, flatfish that is on, on the sediment might ingest a different amount of plastic than a fish that is in um, swimming in the water column, or, for example, a fish that is really hunting specifically for smaller fish or copepods may have a different load than fish that is filtering the water. So Mm. I cannot give you a good explanation for those differences, but they seem to be there. When you say 90% for fulmars and 12% for cod, does that mean 90% of all fulmars you studied have plastic in them? In the North Sea, yes. Okay, yeah. And so 12% of all cod that you Mm -hmm. studied, you would find that they had some plastic in them. That's also for, for our data, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And how did latitude affect plastic uptake by fish? It 
does, and I think it does in the sense of uh, urbanization and ocean currents. So you can imagine the, the North Sea is one of the busiest areas in the world with a lot of traffic, shipping traffic, and a lot of people living around the coast. And when you move a bit northwards, for example, to, to Iceland or to Greenland, to northern Canada as well, uh, you find much less plastic. And on the on, on Iceland, it's only uh, 80%, and in Arctic Canada, it's low, as low as 40% of the birds that have plastics. Um, so the more south you go in the North Sea, the worse the plastic is? You can see it on the small scale as well. So, for example, the channel area between France and the UK is more polluted than the more northern parts of the North Sea. But you can also see it on a big scale with like the North Sea against the Arctic Ocean. I've worried about uh, accumulation. So we've talked before that the plastic and contaminants and stuff can kind of get shuttled up to the Arctic. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you see that at all? Mm, what we saw, we, we studied Fulmas on, on Svalbard. That's like half the way between mm -hmm. northern Norway and uh, Greenland, very high up. So we expected a very low plastic load in the Fulmas. But what we found was higher than on lower latitudes, for example, in Iceland. And our explanation for that finding was that there are some currents going from the South Atlantic or the southern part of the North Atlantic, I have to say, going northwards, and they are actually uh, passing by Iceland and then moving to, to Svalbard. And other researchers, they think that there's even like another plastic garbage patch in, in the Barents Sea close to Svalbard, uh, which may explain the high numbers. So I think currents, they play a major role in the distribution of, of plastics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they take it away from us and then mm -hmm. kind of put it up to the Arctic, which is exactly. a little un unfair, I guess, for everything that's <laughs> yes. living up there. Yeah. And the people too, right? So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Did fish near the coast test higher for plastic uptake? Other researchers found that. However, in our studies, we couldn't find a relationship. So there was no difference whether they were far away from the coast or close by. But this, mm -hmm. again, may have to do with... with currents in a certain marine system. Yeah, that's sort of what you'd think is that the plastic would kind of hang around there. But yeah, if you've ever if you've ever watched the tide go in and out, you can see that the ocean's very strong and that there or if you've ever tried to kayak somewhere and <laughs> against the tide, yeah. you no, can see no it strong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what did you find about wintertime as well? I I read that the the plastic that's being ingested might be different in wintertime. Can you tell us about how you found that and if you have any ideas why that would be? Yeah, we found that pattern in fish. And what we think is causing this is actually the, the foraging ecology of fish. So some fish, they, they tend to stop foraging in winter. And that would explain why you have less plastic at that time in their stomachs. Do they just not eat in the winter? Yeah. Really? They like kind of go into some fish hibernation or something? Yeah, I mean, they still move and swim around, but there were many studies, I, I've looked it up, that say that in the winters they don't eat uh, much. Wow, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So do you have any good news from your studies? Uh, actually, we do have. 
my colleague and I, we, he actually started this program of studying Fulmas in the 1980s. And uh, now we're working on that together. And what we see since like maybe five, six years is actually a decrease of plastic in Fulmas. And Fulmas are thought to mm, mirror the amount of plastic in the ocean. So they're quite useful monitor species to us. And uh, there seems to be less plastic in the stomach than it was like five or ten years ago, which means that the ocean is becoming cleaner. And I think this has to do with all the awareness we are all raising <laughs> in, in public and the, the like um, better regulations of, of uh, plastic waste. So I think this is quite good news, which means that all our efforts are actually working. That's awesome to hear. It's not a quick progress, obviously. I mean, you're throwing plastic into the ocean for the last 60 years. So it will not disappear within a few years. But I think we are on a good way. And if we continue doing our best efforts to reduce plastic, that should actually work the right way. That's amazing. That's some really good news. I always like to include good news on the show. Um, <laughs> and it's it's wonderful that you're doing this research and I know there are a lot of young people who listen to the show and they might be interested in going into science. And I think this is a great example of you doing some really good work and then, you know, seeing that there is hope. Uh, I think I see this a lot with climate change. People just get so hopeless about it, but there are things that we can do and especially when it comes to plastic and waste reduction it's something that we can take control of in our lives and we can just choose not to buy you know frivolous <laughs> plastic packaging so yeah i think a good example is actually oil pollution like here in the 1980s if you would walk the beaches you always encountered uh, batches of oil you couldn't probably walk the beach without having it on your feet or on your shoes and we also found like many, many seabirds with oil uh, in their feathers. And like the sources, of course, were as broad as, as they are nowadays with plastic. And with a few very good regulations and the implementation of it, it was reduced. And nowadays, less than 5% of the seabirds have oil in their feathers. And the, the type of chronic pollution, at least here in, in our region, completely disappeared. We do have some spills once in a while, but this continuous input of oil has almost disappeared. And it took, again, like 10, 20 years to, to see that effect, but it is there and it is there within a generation. So I think this is really good news and I hope the same will happen for plastic pollution, actually. That's great. And that must have been like anti-dumping rules or something. Yes, yeah. And was forbidden to clean your tanks at sea and it, the ship constructions were much better to prevent spills and also the harbors they implemented a lot of rules of how to prevent uh, oil spilling all the time. Mm -hmm. I heard a story from another sailor that they were in a different country and the other ships were just dumping their black water, which is like the sewage, right, of mm -hmm. a ship. They're just dumping the black water into the ocean. But Canada has this rule where we will go with the most strict environmental policies. So if we're in a country with rules that are more strict than ours, we will follow theirs. If we are in a country with less strict environmental rules, then we will follow our own. So 
our ships called a truck to have the black water pumped so that we could properly dispose of it. And then someone on the ship watched as the truck drove away a few kilometers and then dumped it into the ocean. <laughs> yeah, of course, you always have those those few that don't comply with the rules. But I think those rules started because of all the oil pollution in, on, on beaches and also in birds. So I think this is the result of, of, of uh, year-long work. And nowadays you can see that most of the time it works well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's so good. I'm really happy to hear this. And there is a lot of good news in the environment. You just kind of have to look for it because uh, a lot of environmental companies kind of make their money by scaring people. And so they're always trying to make everything look as bad as they they can. But I, I really like to talk to people like you, Suzanne, because there are some good things, right? There's hope, but we have to work, right? We can't just sit back and say, okay, government you do everything like it it, yeah there is work to do so if you can go get a job in science or or policy or um you know even inventing different different things in engineering or something all these things designing packaging for example that is easy to recycle that would be a big step forward a big help yeah absolutely how did you get into studying fulmars during my, my bachelor studies, I did an internship at a research institute that studied the, the distribution of seabirds. So I've been out on ships a lot and counting seabirds in the North Sea. And there I met the former, and actually it was the most beautiful bird I could think of. Still think it's the case. And at the same time, they were also studying plastic uh, in, ingestion in former. So I got really intrigued, and then I contacted uh, my, my supervisor here in the Netherlands. And he didn't want to have a student, actually, because it's a lot of work. But we agreed that if I could collect some samples on Iceland, a place where they didn't have data so far, that it would be okay to to, uh, work with him. So I went to Iceland for my studies and I was able to find those birds. And then he had to uh, (laughs) supervise me and it worked out really well. So until now, we are still working together and... uh, I never stopped studying FOMAS, and I'm still very, very happy with that. That's awesome. And I put that photo of you holding the Fulmar. I'll put that up on Instagram in the show notes too. So if you're listening, you can take a look at that or you can just Google and see if what they look like uh, if you're interested. Do you have anything else to add to the show or anything uh, you'd like to say to listeners who are interested in reducing plastic and interested in the environment? Yeah, I think... It's not only your own responsibility. It's, it's on different levels. Like with almost all environmental issues, you have to work on your own behavior, but also uh, producers, also policymakers, they have to do their own share. So it's it's working together, and I think that's true for all levels. Yeah, there's a lot that we can do, and I don't think it's just one simple little solution. I think no, it's no. many they all go together yeah and they don't exclude each other they have to work together Mm -hmm. yeah i think so too awesome well this has been great suzanne so thank you for all the work that you do and uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with us today it was a pleasure that was suzanne kuhn from wageningen marine research change starts now this is the zero waste countdown podcast